Today's show is about federal economic strength and how we can do so much more to ensure that our nation is a strong nation, both within and beyond our borders. You're listening to Looking Forward with Michael Bazan, where we take a hard look at the past as well as the present in an effort to construct an amazing future. Your host is Michael Bazan. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode three of Looking Forward with Michael Bazan. I'm laughing right now because I just realized that this morning I recorded this monologue and I was so happy with it. It was so awesome. And I just realized that I never plugged in my microphone. There was still audio because the laptop was recording audio, but what I thought was great audio was terrible. Anyways, it's important to laugh at ourselves, and um, (laughs) that's how I'm starting the show. All right. Into the show. Welcome for coming in. Thank you for listening. Let's begin. (laughs) All right. Take two. So, for the longest time, I believed that the government had the ability and economic power to build a better world, and it was just a matter of will that was lacking, simply a matter of misplaced priorities, and that it was necessary to reevaluate those priorities since we are part of a zero-sum game. Anyone with a brain looking around our country would correctly surmise that we do need to re-examine our priorities, but to precede the necessary re-examination of where we place our economic resources and what goals we'd like to achieve with those allocations, I'd like to cover a few things. Now, counties, townships, cities, and states collect their money from licenses, fees, state-operated businesses, and wonderful taxes. Two other sources of income are grants from the federal government and, in some states, lotteries. So in this respect, state governments on down are subject to a zero-sum game for economic resources. Here's a quick definition of zero-sum game. Many people live their lives with a belief that another success is their failure, or what another person gains is their loss. Well, here's the definition of that pervasive belief. In game theory and economic theory, a zero-sum game is a mathematical representation of a situation in which each participant's gain or loss of utility is exactly balanced by the losses or gains of the utility of the other participants. The zero-sum property, if one gain, another loses, means that any result of a zero-sum situation is Pareto-optimal. Pareto efficiency or Pareto optimality is a situation where no individual or preference criterion can be better off without making at least one individual or preference criterion worse off. Generally, any game where all strategies are Pareto optimal is called a conflict game. This is where we find ourselves today when talking about economics, politics, and differing policies. Economic theory is one of, if not the biggest driver of political theory. It governs how political policies are addressed by both parties. It is believed that a Pareto optimal payoff in a zero-sum game gives rise to a relative selfish rationality standard, basically the punishing the opponent standard, where both players always seek to minimize the opponent's payoff. And in our country, this exacerbates our divisions on 
every level. But it seems that I was partly right and partly wrong. I was right about the government's misplaced priorities and lack of will to create better environments and realities within our country. The evidence of that is overflowing. Take a look around. I was wrong, however, as many still are, that we are in a zero-sum game, at least when talking about federal policies. While state and lower levels of government are beholden to very finite revenue sources, the national government, at least ours, the United States of America, as well as others with a strong fiat currency such as Canada, Japan, Australia, and the UK, are not. Now, Warren Mosler states that insolvency is never an issue with non-convertible currency and floating exchange rates, which describes the aforementioned countries, including the U.S. So to backtrack even farther and lay a foundation, let's go back to 1933. On March 4, 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was inaugurated as the 32nd President of the United States of America. America and the world were all still battling the effects of the Great Depression, which started in 1929. FDR fought the war against the Depression in many ways, and this is one of them. On April 5, 1933, in an effort to remove some of the limitations on the Federal Reserve that were hampering its ability to increase the money supply, FDR signed Executive Order 6102. In 1913, Woodrow Wilson had signed the Federal Reserve Act into law, creating the central banking system of the United States that we know as the Federal Reserve System. Due to stipulations, the act required 40% gold backing of Federal Reserve notes issued. And by the late 1920s, the Federal Reserve had almost hit the limit of allowable credit in the form of Federal Reserve demand notes that could be backed by the gold in its possession. So first, a quick refresher on what the gold standard is for anyone that doesn't remember. The gold standard is a monetary system where a country's currency or paper money has a value directly linked to gold. With the gold standard, countries agreed to convert paper money into a fixed amount of gold. A country that uses the gold standard sets a fixed price for gold and buys and sells gold at that price. That fixed price is used to determine the value of the currency. For example, if the US sets the price of gold at $500 an ounce, the value of the dollar would be 1 500th of an ounce of gold. So what Executive Order 6102 did was to forbid the hoarding of gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates within the continental United States. Essentially, all Americans had to exchange all the gold that they had to the Federal Reserve in exchange for $20.67 per troy ounce. That equates to $408 in 2019. Now, remember that the goal of this was to increase the money supply and combat the Depression, but many, rightly so, saw this as a draconian measure. It's a good thing that we would not have to resort to draconian measures today to increase the money supply, but we'll get to that. So what did the U.S. government do after it had all the gold? Well, don't worry. I'm here to tell you. On January 30th, 1934, the United States passed the Gold Reserve Act. This allowed the government to pass all the gold it had from the Federal Reserve to the United States Department of the Treasury. 
The Gold Reserve Act also established the Exchange Stabilization Fund under control of the Treasury to control the dollar's value without the assistance or approval of the Federal Reserve and authorized the President to establish the gold value of the dollar by proclamation. Then the magic happened. FDR immediately raised the price of gold from $20.67 per troy ounce to $35. This effectively almost doubled the money supply, basically a 41% increase. This is important for multiple reasons. First, it illustrates how illusory the value of money is and always has been, even while on the gold standard. Secondly, it illustrates the need to increase the money supply to combat economic downturns such as the one we're in right now. Thirdly, it illustrates how increasing the money supply allowed our nation to accomplish pretty incredible feats, both inside our country and out. We built amazing social programs and an amazing military. They were able to be done at the same time. Now, let's fast track to everyone's favorite president, Richard Milhouse Nixon. In August of 1971, Nixon announced that the U.S. would no longer exchange gold for U.S. currency. This effectively put a nail in the coffin of the gold standard. Preceding this, in 1944, at the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference held in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, 44 countries in the Bretton Woods Agreement decided that all national currencies were valued in relation to the U.S. dollar which became the dominant reserve currency. Now, Bretton Woods, combined with Richard Nixon's declaration, gave the U.S. an extremely strong fiat currency. Now, a fiat system, by contrast to the gold standard, is a monetary system in which the value of currency is not based on any physical commodity, but is instead allowed to fluctuate dynamically against other currencies on the foreign exchange markets. But due to Bretton Woods, all national currencies were valued in relation to the U.S. dollar, which became the dominant reserve currency. Now, the term fiat is derived from the Latin fieri, meaning an arbitrary act or decree. In keeping with this etymology, the value of fiat currencies is ultimately based on the fact that they are defined as legal tender by way of government decree. In other words... It is pure fiction, and our currency has value, partly because our government says it does, but mostly because, as Warren Mosler states, under a fiat monetary system, money is an accepted medium of exchange only because the government requires it for tax payments. Basically, he goes on to say that fiat money is a tax credit, not backed by a tangible asset. Don't you wish you had a wallet full of tax credits? But there's a lot of people out there that do. These are difficult times. But here are a few other proclamations Mosler makes. First is that government fiat money necessarily means that federal spending need not be based on revenue. In essence, the taxpayer is not the center of the universe. The federal government is not dependent on tax revenue for federal spending. In addition, Mosler states that the federal government has no more money at its disposal when the federal budget is in surplus than when the budget is in deficit. Does that make sense? I'll say it again. 
essentially whether our federal government has a surplus or a deficit, it does not affect the amount of money at the federal government's disposal. The federal government does not rely on our taxes to be able to spend. So while the budget and the deficit are metrics to monitor, they are not the most important and by no means the only metric to be concerned with when it comes to our country's economic health. Especially if your standards of measure are more along the lines of Abba Lerner's economic theory, functional finance. Here are a few bullet points of functional finances principles. First is, money is a creature of the state and it has to be managed. Plus, these economies are not self-regulating and governments have to intervene in a national and global economy. In the U.S., we manage our money with monetary policy and fiscal policy, and here's how they differ. Monetary policy is primarily concerned with the management of interest rates and the total supply of money in circulation, and is generally carried out by the central banks such as the U.S. Federal Reserve. Now, fiscal policy is a collective term for the taxing and spending actions of governments. In the United States, the national fiscal policy is determined by the executive and legislative branches of government. In our country, our fiscal and monetary policies are more reactive than proactive, effectively working more like triage rather than confidently using our earned economic power to actually build a strong nation inside and out. Lerner states that the principal economic objective of the state should be to ensure a prosperous economy and fiscal policy should be directed in light of its impact on the economy, and the budget should be managed accordingly. That is, balancing revenue and spending is not important. Prosperity is important. And by prosperity, Lerner is referring to the success and economic well-being of the people, of you, of me, of your neighbors. When he talks about the vigorous and healthy growth, he is talking about society, not the GDP. Now, we're all raised having the GDP crammed down our throats, and uh, I personally never thought much about it at first. I thought it made sense to try to quantify the, you know, and total the sums of our economy. I feel that quantifying anything and everything is, is pretty damn interesting and helpful. It's helpful. But I first became skeptical of its worth when I read how disaster-related spending enlarges the GDP. Now, Investopedia defines GDP as being the total monetary or market value of all finished goods and services produced within a country's borders in a specified time period. As a broad measure of overall domestic production, it functions as a comprehensive scorecard of a given country's economic health. A comprehensive scorecard of a given country's economic health. I disagree with that. You know, when our country's economic health is discussed, we talk about the GDP and maybe employment rates and price stability. We do not talk about the percentage of people in our economy who are homeless or hungry or impoverished or uneducated, illiterate, without access to medical care or proper nutrition or any number of issues that need to be addressed. None of these issues are talked about when we discuss our country's economic health. And when the money spent dealing with a hurricane, tornado, or earthquake makes this all-important metric that everyone worships better, that we, you know, we judge our economic health on this metric, 
and it makes it appear to be thriving, something is terribly wrong. Don't get me wrong, dealing with natural disasters is part of our job to deal with, for sure. But picture this. Let's say it's 2035 or 2040, and we live in a world where there are natural disasters and man-made disasters happening all around the country due to both our decision not to deal with climate change and because some natural disasters will occur regardless. So disasters and carnage are everywhere, and the cleanup is propping up our GDP. As I said, measuring a GDP is one worthwhile metric, and administering to disaster relief is of massive importance. But this scenario does not define a country's economic health. Now, picture the news, and they're interviewing the politicians of the day, and they're raving about the strength of the economy. Now, that's a pretty sickening scenario, but it's not too far removed from the reality of today as we would like, as far as massive economic ills and death being pervasive, and all we get is the constant claiming of a strong economy. But for who? Not you. Not me. Strong economy is not what we have. A strong currency and strong economic power at the federal level is something that we have. Now, the GDP is a poor and vastly incomplete measure for how the economy is functioning for all people. It just is. Now, Lerner goes on to say the amount and pace of government spending should be set in light of the desired level of activity, and taxes should be levied for their economic impact rather than to raise revenue. As Mosler stated, federal spending is not based on revenue. So Lerner is saying that Federal spending should be based on the desired level of economic activity being actions that involve the production, distribution, and consumption of goods and services at all levels within a society. And taxes should be levied for their economic impact in terms of jobs, income, and wealth. But definitely not to raise revenue, as most people and politicians believe the purpose of taxes on every level is. To reiterate, this would be true on a state and lower level, but not at the federal level. Now, paying attention to a broader band of economic levers and metrics than we currently do would allow us not only to be more fiscally responsible, but would allow us to achieve many more worthwhile goals that would build a stronger society, meaning our nation would be stronger within its borders and not just beyond our citizenry would be able to honestly embrace the promises of the Declaration of the Independence, whose origin and our country's origin we celebrated just a few days ago, such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, another principle of functional finance is that the principles of sound finance apply to individuals. They make sense for individuals, households, businesses, and non-sovereign governments such as cities and individual U.S. states, but do not apply to the governments of sovereign states capable of issuing money. In other words, a balanced budget is important to a household or business, but should by no means be the single criteria for a sovereign government with a strong fiat currency. We have all been sold this lie all our lives to this day, Read the news today. This lie is still being sold by all parties. 
but this lie that what we pay in taxes is equal to what the government can spend. And one of the most notable examples of this in the West was in 1983 when Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, declared that the state has no source of money other than the money people earn themselves. If the state wishes to spend more, it can only do so by borrowing your savings or by taxing you more. And it's no good thinking that someone else will pay. That someone else is you. There is no such thing as public money. There is only taxpayers' money. Now that sounds like a pretty convenient way really not to do shit for the people, right? By saying the only way we can do something for you is borrowing from your savings or taxing you more. And people are already probably having a pretty difficult time. That's pretty convenient. Now, as I said, this is pervasive to this day. And another Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, David Cameron, echoed the same sentiments as recently as 2015. He said, We know that there is no such thing as public money. There is only taxpayer money. As you can see from, you know, Lerner and Mosler, this is not the case. And for those of you that love America, know that, like I said, we've been following economic theories of Austrians and Englishmen. And there's nothing wrong with learning from those around us. It would not hurt us to do so in this current battle. But wouldn't it be great if our understanding of the economy, especially since we are talking about our economy, which is quite unique, came from America? So how about concentrating on Mosler's and Kelton's economic theory, modern monetary theory, that is bred right here in America? I make this point because that fact is never even uttered. MMT is an economic theory from America. So go out, don your, or stay in rather, but you get the idea. Don your most patriotic attire and check it out. Now, for far too long, the West has adhered to economic theory that had many things in the incorrect order. Now, Stephanie Kelton mentions a mnemonic device that explains the conventional way of thinking, which is TABS. T-A-B-S. This stands for taxing and borrowing precedes spending. That's the conventional way that all our politicians, the media, and just about everyone that votes thinks the federal government's economy runs. Now, if anyone has run a business or a household, this makes sense, right? You have to have revenue, i.e. taxes paid in, or borrowing, i.e. loans or lines of credit, before you can spend. But we do not create our money supply. That is indeed how it works for us, but absolutely not how it works for the federal government. Now, I want to pause for a second and let you know that I know this may be dry or even sound boring, but trust me, it's not. And I'll tell you why in a bit. Now, Mosler and Kelton state that the real order of federal spending is STAB. I like that mnemonic device. S-T-A-B. Basically, that spending precedes taxing and borrowing. The federal government spends its currency into existence. So this creates a lot of questions, but first, let's recap a bit. First, the federal government is not dependent on our taxes for spending. Secondly, our money has value because it is required and accepted as a tax payment. So some will say that believing that the U.S. federal government has more economic power than they are willing to admit is a liberal belief, that it shouldn't be. You know, are we so egocentric that 
We need to hold on to our belief that our taxes are the center of the universe and we make the world go round. I admit, it was disheartening for me to learn otherwise, but this is the case. The taxpayer is not the center of the universe. It doesn't mean that we don't have a say in government, though. And this changes so many discussions, and this is why this subject is not dry or boring. So, first, how many times in politics over the years, and definitely in this primary, did you hear, how are you going to pay for it? 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 Like they're just pressing a button. This is a mantra that has been beaten into the ground by Republicans, Democrats, media, and everyone else. But the joke's on us. There is no need to offset social programs or any federal expenditure with tax revenue at the federal level. But this is why an economic theory is not liberal, conservative, or intrinsically adherent to any political philosophy. For instance... Modern monetary theory is simply an explanation of how the economy already works. While admittedly some adherents to the theory feel that it would enable us to provide more for our country. But here's the dark side. If the national government is not dependent on our taxes and can spend what it desires as long as inflation levels are not out of whack, then they could put that money towards detrimental things as well. And... They have. So for the last 40 years, I've watched the obnoxious spending, what I considered obnoxious spending, of the federal government, mostly on wars against its own citizens, as well as wars around the world. I grew up with the war on drugs, the militarization of police, the expansion of the prison industrial complex, then for pro the rise of profit for-profit prisons and immigration jails the war against banking reforms, the war against New Deal policies, and anything and everything else that would benefit the American people, our government has basically been against. Now, since 1980, we've been involved in warfare in Lebanon, Grenada, Panama, Kuwait, Iraq, Somalia, Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq again, Libya against ISIL in various places, then Syria. These are all different situations, and I'm not attempting to debate whether or not involvement in these events were warranted or not. My point, though, is that since 1980, the federal government has spent a tremendous amount of money, and if you think that they were waiting for our taxes to do so, like I immediately was, then we're both naive. So to reiterate, all these programs and wars were hugely expensive to say the least. And it is really hard to believe and incredibly unlikely that our federal government is in any way cash-strapped or dependent on our taxes in order to spend. And that is one of the reasons why an economic theory is neither liberal nor conservative, because there are already certain aspects of MMT already being used to fund this constant warfare within and beyond our borders. It is also why it's important to elect well-meaning individuals and not just the corporate lackeys that we've been subject to for far too long. Now, I wanted to start this episode talking about the belief of a zero-sum game, that I would say that 
probably 99% of our population believes in. For example, conservatives want money to go towards the military and away from social programs, and liberals want money to go towards social programs and away from the military. But the truth is, we can achieve both goals. And the, a reevaluation of where we should place our economic resources and how much is absolutely necessary. But as a starting point, let's get rid of the zero-sum game belief when discussing national policies and federal spending. We could achieve so much more if every political debate wasn't framed in the same cliche way. Here's the basic equation. I think it will sound pretty familiar. I want to do my X, so we need to cut the funding of your X. Or we need to cut the funding of your X, so that I can do my X. We've all heard that three billion times for every single issue and policy that anybody, well-meaning or not, cares about. And it's not achieving anything. So with these two aforementioned issues, the military and uh, social programs, I, I feel, I mean... Who doesn't want... I want peace. I make no apologies for that. I feel that it's imperative to work towards a world where the need for a military is obsolete. But I'm also a realist. And I know that that's unlikely to happen in my lifetime or possibly ever. For the moment, a military is essential for a nation state. So I believe that a military is essential for our strength beyond our borders... And social programs are essential for our strength within our borders. Now, our country can achieve so much more than it has, and our best days can really be ahead of us. But only if we throw off the shackles of traditionalism. We've been fighting an economic battle with both hands tied behind our, our back. And, uh, you know, there's an old saying that I particularly love by Rudolf Fleisch especially after growing up in the suburbs of Dallas in the 80s where where and when conformity seemed to be at its fucking pinnacle. And he says, creative thinking may mean simply the realization that there's no particular virtue in doing things the way they have always been done. Let me repeat that. Creative thinking may mean simply the realization that there's no particular virtue in doing things the way they've always been done. Now, we need creativity and intelligence more than ever right now. Make no mistake, we are in a hole, but we by no means lack the ability to get out of this hole. So please hear these words, whether you're far right, moderate, or far left. We've been fed a big, fat lie that the federal government is less financially powerful than it is. And here's the deal. Many of us would prefer that the government was not in our lives at all. Many of us would prefer a world where there is zero need to pay attention to politics. Many of us would prefer to have less laws, systems, and policies restricting our freedoms. But unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your perspective, there is not going to be a day with no government anytime soon. It is not going anywhere. So fortunately, most of life is a matter of perspective and it's time to take our government back. The government belongs to us, the people. It works for us or it should. We are not subjects to it as we've allowed ourselves to be. 
The president is not our king, and we do not exist for their pleasure. It is time we take our power back. And part of that is requiring the government to actually perform its function, do its job. Now, we do not have to be pawns in the game. It is time that we require the federal government's policies and spending. We require that they are in line with the goals of creating a strong country inside and out. And we have a lot of questions to ask ourselves since we now realize that the federal government does not have the same restrictions on its purse strings as the state governments do. Now, my first question is to conservatives. Would you still be against social programs such as Medicare for All and others now that you know that the funding for that would not take away from the funding of what you deem most important? Now, my next question is to liberals. Would you at least table for a moment the request to reduce military spending now that we know that a balanced budget is not a worthwhile goal and that military spending need not take from spending for social programs such as Medicare for All, education, and programs to eliminate hunger, homelessness, and poverty? Now, to all the people that still embrace a racist ideology... Now that you know that it is not a zero-sum game, at least at the federal level, is there a chance that you can put in the work to become anti-racist? Now that you know that the government has been feeding us a bunch of lies as to a strictly limited money supply? Now that you know that another person's gain does not equal your loss? Look, I mentioned where and when I grew up and during which time. And I was a full-on misanthrope. Meaning that I had a general dislike, distrust, and contempt for the human species and human nature. I mean, I was surrounded by greed and, and all the people around me were absolutely terrible. And everything I saw in the media and politics promoted these ideologies. There was not much reason to have much respect for human nature. And I finally reached a point after much recklessness and frequent wishing for death that I moved away and I literally saved my life. But I worked on being an anti-misanthrope. I always found it odd for anyone to be racist when, in my opinion, all people sucked. The level at which people sucked was definitely not dependent on the color of their skin, a person's gender, height, physical appearance, country of origin, religion, hair color, sexual preference, or any other characteristic that we use to describe a human being or a member of the human species. But I had to work on that, and it's been hard work. It is especially difficult in 2020. I'll tell you that. I mean... Let's be real. But one of the conclusions I came to a while back is this. You do not have to like someone to care about them. Remember that. I'm not asking you to like everyone. But you damn sure have to care about them. And now that you know that another person's gain does not equal your loss, hopefully the endeavor to be an anti-racist 
and an anti-misanthrope, wherever you fall on the spectrum, is at least a little easier. Hopefully you can make the progress necessary to not like everyone, but to give a shit about their well-being. Now this is essential in a community. Without it, society breaks down. It cracks. It divides. And that is what we are witnessing right now in real time. Now I have a further hypothesis about how our differing definitions of certain terms such as power, love, justice, patriotism, freedom, success, entrepreneurship, and others are a major component in our divisions. That's for a future episode, but I wanted to cover a few aspects of economics first because our adherence to an archaic and incorrect economic theory is also one of the main reasons our country is so divided. And that adherence that governs how you vote, as well as how those people we vote into office make decisions, has exacerbated a myriad of societal ills, especially over the last 40 years. But it is literally not too late. We're not too far gone. We can pivot right the fuck now and create the world that was a promise at the inception of our country. We do not have to remain pawns in the game and economic fodder that we have been during this pandemic and beforehand. And speaking of questions pandemic-wise, here's another question. Knowing what you now know about how our economy works, who feels that it was 100% negligent for the federal government to pass the responsibility for testing to the states? being that the state's economic resources are extremely more finite than the federal government's economic power. Sleep on that and get back to me. Also, why did I walk by several encampments or Hoovervilles every day on my way to work downtown when we have the absolute ability to do away with homelessness? There are a million questions to be asked, and I'm not complaining about my walk. I'm complaining about the hypocrisy of stating how wonderful our economy is while seeing that it obviously is not. Now, the metrics we use to define our country's economic health need to be severely reevaluated, as do the goals we are trying to achieve, after which we need to examine the tools, levers, and financial powers to monitor and proactively engage in order to achieve those goals. Now, Kelton states that for evidence of overspending, look to inflation, not the budget or deficit. She goes on to say the government's budget isn't supposed to balance. Our economy is. The budget is just a tool that can be used to add and subtract dollars from the rest of us. In other words, we are using the wrong metrics to measure our success. Keep in mind, too, a government surplus essentially means that they took more money out of the economy right? Surplus means they took more money out of the economy. If there's a deficit, they left more money in the economy. Now, if the federal budget is balanced, that means that they put in what they put in is equal to what they took out. So fighting for a balanced budget or a surplus is fighting for less money in the economy. Now, most politicians and voters have essentially been fighting for and voting for policies that take money out of the economy. That seems pretty detrimental to do for any period of time, more or less the length of time that all of America has been doing it. And it's time to stop. There are many 
many important metrics to watch, and MMT is actually about paying more attention and being more responsible with economic resources. Because even though the deficit matters less than we've been taught, there is still a breaking point for everything. So paying attention to a broader range of metrics while addressing a wide range of goals results in being being fiscally responsible to a higher degree than the laissez-faire attitude conservatives love so much. Al Kelton goes on to say, the federal government has historically almost always kept its deficit too small. Evidence of a deficit that is too small is unemployment. So evidence of overspending is inflation, and evidence of a deficit being too small is unemployment. Now a quick note on inflation. Inflation is by all means a real thing, but here's the deal. For the last decade, many of the world's major countries have been desperately trying to solve the opposite problem, underinflation. The US, Japan, and the European Union have a goal inflation rate of 2%, but none of these countries have been able to bring it up that high. So inflation, underinflation, and deflation are definitely conditions to monitor, but we're not on the edge of the cliff you're risking hyperinflation like the Republicans and Democrats like to paint the risk of high deficits and inflation as. Now, the deficit has been focused on to such an extreme extent that there are, are even laws in both the House and Senate that severely restrict the, its effectiveness to work for the American people. So when the House debates propose legislation, they are subject to the PAYGO rule, which demands that new expenditures are balanced by new tax income. So not only balanced by tax income, but new tax income. So if taxes are already earmarked, and since the Congress still works under an archaic understanding of the economy, higher taxes would seemingly be the only option if Congress wanted to do anything beneficial for Americans. Does that sound like a system that has even a chance in hell of working for us? I don't think so. Now, the Senate has a similar self-imposed constraint called the Bird Rule, and also the so-called debt ceiling limits government spending in, in the same way. Now, these are wise rules for households or businesses, but they simply do not apply to the federal government, and adhering to them is simply detrimental. And make no mistake, the powers that be have us right where they want us, distracted and seemingly powerless and definitely divided. As I said earlier, let's demand more from our leaders. Let's elect those who understand economics, which is entirely different from understanding business. Let's elect those whose goals are to work for the American people and not just their political party or their base. Right now, and rightly so, there are so many concerned with the Supreme Court, electing a president that has America's best interest in mind when they appoint a Supreme Court justice is imperative. But keep in mind that the chair of the Federal Reserve is also nominated by the president, and this has a bigger impact on American people than you may realize, since they govern monetary policy. Then, as a reminder, the president and legislative branches are in charge of fiscal policy. So, it is of utmost important that we pivot right now, and the first step is to start electing people that as a bare minimum, have the following criteria. First, a dedication to work for all the people in our country and not just their party or political base. Second, 
a modern understanding of how the economic system of a sovereign country with a fiat currency works. Third, a knowledge of science and the wisdom to know that the climate and nature is literally what sustains our lives. Fourth, a knowledge of history and an actual vision for the future. Right now, we spend all our time arguing interest for this or that group. While that is necessary due to circumstances, it's not the ideal juncture for our country to be in. We need to strive to get to a place where we are working toward the benefit of all people in our country. That includes indigenous people. That includes all Americans who are descendants of immigrants, some brought here not on their own accord. It includes all new arrived immigrants, which the term illegal shouldn't even apply. And we can go, we'll go into that into further um, episodes how, well, a little Latin American history and how it just ridiculous how we treat people when they reach our country because we were part of causing the strife around the world. Anyways, at that point, we can still have conflicts, but they will be about creativity and problem solving, not how to restrict resources from this group or that group. Now, this is a paradigm shift, and I wanted to cover it early because it is literally the linchpin that is holding us back, that keeps us fighting one another. America spends too much time acting like petulant children. We are a very rich country, but that does not mean that we should act like a disgustingly greedy and ruthless family fighting over an inheritance. That's what our politicians and citizens act like. That is what our country is like. It's, it's that story combined with the tit-for-tat of the Hatfield and McCoys. And while that's a very, in, a very entertaining and interesting history, it's not something that we want to model. Now, we need to get past this stage of our country's development because it is literally killing us right alongside the promise of our country. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show, and I wanted to read an excerpt from Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, to set up the next episode. So the third myth is that the deficit will burden the next generation. Politicians love to trot out this myth, proclaiming that by running deficits, we are ruining the lives of our children and grandchildren, saddling them with crippling debt that they will eventually have to repay. One of the most influential perpetrators of this myth was Ronald Reagan, but even Senator Bernie Sanders has echoed Reagan, saying, I am concerned about the debt. It's not something we should be leaving to our kids and our grandchildren. While this rhetoric is powerful, its economic logic is not. History bears this out. As a share of gross domestic product, GDP, the national debt was at its highest, 120%, in the period immediately following the Second World War. Yet this was the same period during which the middle class was built. Real median family income soared and the next generation enjoyed a higher standard of living without the added burden of higher tax rates. The reality is that government deficits don't force financial burdens forward onto future populations. Increasing the deficit doesn't make future generations poorer, and reducing deficits won't make them any richer. Now, if we want to concern ourselves with a debt that will burden our children and our grandchildren and future generations in general, 
The deficit is not where we should be focusing our attention for all the aforementioned reasons. The real culprit that we need to annihilate is consumer debt, which has risen exponentially in the last 40-50 years for a myriad of reasons that I will focus on in episode 4. So definitely check it out. It affects us all. Now I'd like to close on a personal note. In episode one, I dedicated the show to three dear friends that were lost, as well as my uncle Rick, who had just been diagnosed with cancer. This morning, my wife and I learned that he passed away, and I'd like to dedicate this show to my uncle Rick Bazan, who was a wonderful man, and also as a childhood memory, he contributed to a younger version of myself being able to see the original 1977 Star Wars in the theater 11 times. It was a most amazing thing I had ever seen, and my Uncle Rick took me to a few of those showings. You will definitely be loved and missed. And thank you all for joining me on this journey to create a better world for all of us. Thanks for listening and going on this journey. If you were inspired to create an amazing future, leave us a five-star review, share with your friends, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.